Two weeks ago, uh, my computer blinked at me, and I was suddenly staring at this troubling message. And one of our computer guys here, Wayne, uh, took a look and reported to me, your hard drive is dead. So I began the process of communicating with the warranty company and seeing what might be done to get it replaced. And of course, they have their protocol, so you go through a series of phone calls with a variety of people, and each of them asks you, have you done this, and describe the problem, and have you tried that? And so far, um, you know, it's entailed several lengthy phone calls and uh, a quick trip to, you know, get a flash drive with enough gigabytes to upload something and then down, or download something and then upload something, and, and I'm, I'm remaining fairly patient, all things considered, but it really has at a point as a Friday afternoon where the, the last guy, bless his heart, uh, he, he, I could even hear him, like he's searching all kinds of things on his computer and, you know, much sighing and apologies and try this and what does your screen look like now and, you know, and I keep saying, it, it looks like that. And um, we did find a couple of other options or other screens and it, it still shows a few things, you know, bits of information you know, like we're still sure that this Surface Pro was created by this manufacturer and operates with this system, but it doesn't do what it was created to do. And whether the hard drive has been, you know, corrupted to the point that it's beyond repair, uh, which that seems what's going on, it's still frustrating to me that one since I can, I can power, enough, power it up enough to see a few things like this to go, well, it, it's clearly not fully dead, but it's just not even close to performing as it was designed to. And I was thinking how often there are experiences like this in life that remind us, like, the whole world's like this. It's not really operating as it was fully designed to do. And so many functions have been corrupted or disabled, and and while, you know, thankfully, you know, we didn't wake up this morning to a, blue, a big blue sky that said, you know, you're done, screen of death, uh, as it were. There are plenty of reminders on a daily basis that things really are badly corrupted and life just isn't the way it ought to be. And we are worn out hearing about how pollution and climate change and homelessness and overpopulation uh, you know, just to name a few of, of the real concerns are reminders of a corrupted system. Many of us, in, in light of that, even go deeper and, and, you know, we begin to ask a series of questions like, well, what's wrong with us? It's not just an environmental corruption that's happened. I mean, the, the problem is the, the people who inhabit this planet What's wrong with us? And even, frankly, if we're really honest, I've asked this, haven't you? What's wrong with me? Like, sometimes it's because my thinking isn't straight or I, I'm just feeling a particular way, and I know, like, I'm not operating as I think I should. Questions about identity. Who am I individually? Who are we as a, a race? How did, how did I get here? And why am I here? Well, God's word answers the most important questions in life. 
And the passage that we're going to go to today not only gives a brief history of how we got here, but it provides some really important truth concerning why we're here. And in the coming weeks, right up until Thanksgiving, we're going to explore Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and, and really dig into some foundational truths that God gives us for our blessing and benefit. Uh, he wants us to live life at the fullest, and he recognizes that there is a, a deeply embedded corruption in this, but he is the one who not only comes to us and says, I'm the creator of all that is, and this is who I designed you to be, but as part of the great story, he explains how the, the, whole, the whole life system that we're a part of has been corrupted, and wonderfully how ultimately the entire system will be redeemed and remade. You know, my worst fear is that, like, the next email I'll get from the, the warranty company that is, you know, servicing my Surface Pro will be, well, just send it in to us. Let us see if we can repair it. I, I'm beyond that point. They need to send me a new computer. That, that's what I'm praying for. And really, I, I'm not interested in just, you know, kind of being retooled as an individual or even seeing this world kind of, you know, reset to a, an earlier time and season where it was a healthier ecosystem, whatever. Like, we, we personally and our world needs to be remade. And that's exactly what God promises he will do. So to begin this brief series, let's go back to Genesis 1, the very first book of the Bible. And I want to read Genesis 1 and then pray one more time, and then we're going to dig in for a few minutes before we come to the Lord's table. Genesis 1. You follow along. I am going to take time to read the chapter, only a few minutes, but it will be worth our reading. As you hear it read and as you look at a copy of the scriptures, I want you to start thinking in terms of things that are repeated. And I'm going to go back and highlight these things, but I want you to just tune in to maybe words or phrases, but just pay attention to the things that are repeated. This is the word of the Lord, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning. The first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with, it in it, with, with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the truth that it brings to our minds and our souls, and we thank you for the life it brings to our hearts. And we ask that on this day, as you have promised, the preaching of your word would accomplish all that you are sending it to do. That as we read this text and we meditate on it, our hearts would be open fully, our minds yielded to you, our wills submitted to you fully, so that we would believe all that you have have designed uh, to grow our faith, to settle our hearts, to establish us in the peace uh, of your great truth and reality. And we pray for those who feel so distracted and overwhelmed by the cares and responsibilities of life, that you would breathe into their souls that eternal rest that comes from you alone. 
Would you give to them clear minds that they would not be anxious or distracted? And would you give to them the assurance that you are God over all, even their difficult circumstances on this day? For those who feel the physical pain, some of chronic illness, others of of sickness and disease that they are battling, would you bring relief to them in this time that they too might be able to set their hearts and souls upon this living uh, word, this bread of life. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we seek you by faith, imperfect in our understanding, even weak in our faith, that you would come to us in such kindness and mercy as we have known before. And as we seek you, that you would let us know you and that you would fulfill your promise to be found. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the Spirit. We thank you that you are God over all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So foundationally, Genesis 1 is a 36,000-foot overview. And there are some details given, but God really doesn't get down into the microscopic, does he? He leaves you in high school biology to focus the microscope on those single cell uh, parts of his creation and, and pull them apart and understand them. No, he's giving you some important truth here. He's giving us uh, some foundational truths, first of all, to understand who he is. The important subject, as the screen behind me indicates, uh, would, would be found in the opening words of this chapter. Look at the text once again, in the beginning. Now let me pause right there and say, if we were reading a Hebrew Bible, we would notice that the, the book itself draws its title from those three words. The English translation that we're looking at uses the word Genesis, which is, if you want to know the history of that, that actually comes out of a, a, a really ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew, and Genesis uh, is a word that simply means origins. But the, the book itself actually begins with the phrase, in the beginning, and God's taking us back to a time that we didn't exist, and neither did the universe, as we have come to know it. So in the beginning, and then we come to the, the most important word, God. And as you were hearing Genesis 1 read, I hope that most of you said, well, there's a word that's repeated often, 32 times by my count in this particular English version. And God is the great subject of every verb in this chapter. It's God who created. It's God who was hovering. It's God who said, God who saw, God who made, God who set, God who called, and God who blessed. It's God who's operating. God who was there before any matter came into existence. He created the matter. It's not just that he was, you know, walking through the universe and, and stumbled onto a, a pile of something that he said, well, I could work with that. No, he created all that is. He is the great and only subject of every verb in the creation narrative. And so then immediately you be, you're struck with an important pattern that develops in the text and there's some repeated phrases, aren't there? So God created the heavens and the earth and there's an important framework that, that is being developed and it's simply this. God said it was so and it was good. 
And you can note the number of times that we read together, God said. God spoke specific words, and when God speaks, things happen. It was so. Not just close to, approximately. No, it's exactly as he says. And I love the fact that Moses, who wrote this first book, it's it's one of five books that he wrote in the Old Testament. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's also careful to include seven times the report that everything God said and everything that came into being was good. God said. Do you know that the term that is used here in Genesis 1 and throughout the Old Testament in particular, the term that that we translate into the English as create has exclusive reference to God's work. You can't find an example from Genesis all the way through Malachi where people like you and me create. Now, People like us will make things or form things or build things. And there is a kind of creativity that we are aware of. And some of you are artists and musicians and authors. And you create things uh, along those lines. But not one other being in the universe creates as God does. If I were to transliterate the the Hebrew word or, or try to give it a rough pronunciation, it would simply be bara. You don't barah, I don't barah. Only God creates like this. God created all that is, and he himself is uncreated. It's hard for us to fathom, isn't it? I mean, just just wrap your mind around that. You can't really. You can acknowledge it. You can affirm it. It's not illogical, but it's it's super logical to finite creatures like us, isn't it? Now, notice specifically, though, that it's not only that God creates or acts in this particular way, but the word of God is the means of creation all through this account, right? God said, and and things happened. And you could take a quick uh, side trip into John 1, verses 1 through 3, that describe the word, who we know is Jesus ultimately. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Come to Colossians 1 and see similar truth. And even here in Genesis 1, the spirit of God is described as hovering or brooding over creation. So it's a Trinitarian participation and it's exclusive to them. When God speaks, things happen. That second phrase, it was so, reminds us that his creative word is powerful. It's powerful. Think about all that's included here. And it's also productive. Now, what does it produce? And this leads us to the third uh, circle, if you will. Well, it was good. And and verse 31 summarizes it with the, the... Additional word, very good. Now, notice the progression through the days. And I, I want you to see it. I know, I know you can't read the fine print there. Don't, don't worry about this. But uh, creation really is divided into a couple of key parts. We're gonna, the seventh day is its own. That's the day God rested. But in six days, he created, according to the account, all that is. And the first three days really begin to address something that we read in verse 1. Go back in and, and, uh, verses 1 and 2. Go back and, and look at the text with me again. God created the heavens and the earth. Now verse 2 tells us the earth was without form and void. And, and there are several different creation theories that, that try 
try to load into that the passing of a great age, like there was an initial creation, and then it all kind of went to pot, and God showed up, and he did something new that he describes here. But that's not actually the point. It, it would be akin to, uh, if, if you were to think of a, a, a present-day analogy that might help you understand this, the phrase, without form and void, uh, is not referring to a premortal existence, but think more of, a, of a, a lump of clay that a master potter throws onto the wheel. How many of you have had a pottery class at some point and worked with a wheel? More than just where you rolled out Play-Doh and you, know, you created a bowl by you know, stacking up enough of those little Play-Doh worms or clay worms. Um, but if you've actually thrown clay onto a wheel, it's, it's without form, and void just means it was empty. And so the first three days when day one, light and dark are created, day two, sea and sky, and day three, the fertile earth as it's described there, well, that seems to address the formlessness. It it takes shape at the sovereign command of God. And then days four, five, and six, lights for the day and night, creatures for the sea and sky, and and creatures for the fertile earth in verse six. Well, he's addressing the emptiness. He's filling it up. And God's goodness is visible in these particular ways. And so where there was once formlessness, now there's order. Where there was emptiness, there's now fertility with plants and animals and even people and terms like sprout and yielding and the earth brought forth and trees are bearing fruit. All of that points to fertility. Verse 14, the fixed seasons are part of, good, uh, of God's goodness. One author writes, the sun, moon, and stars are thus all God's creation, attesting to his glory and ruling over time by his decree. Not so in the mythology of pagans. Sun gods, moon gods, the whole astrological arrangement for the pantheons of the pagans, what folly it was, was and is to follow the astrological charts whether it be the Babylonians of old or the sun god of the Egyptians, what folly it is thinking that the answers to destiny lie there. We don't have time to explore even the context in which this book was first written, but Moses is the great rescuer of a nation of slaves. And many of them, for as long as they can remember, knew only the slavery of Egypt, knew the culture of Egypt. And so the the ideas about the multiple deities permeated so many of their hearts and many of them wondered and struggled even though they had seen mighty acts of, of the God that Moses was pointing them to still wondered if the Egyptian gods would, would get it figured out and, and wreck and destroy and God is giving important truth saying you know you came from a land that worshipped the sun I created the sun you came from a land that worshipped a variety of animals I created all those things and they are not divine What a powerful word and good word it is. Back to the text, though, you see the abundance of life where there was first emptiness. You also see an interdependence of life. He gives every plant for food because he created us with systems that need to be fueled and hunger pains are part of that. What goodness. Even the potential for productivity, his command uh, to the, the first man and the first woman in verse 28, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And as glorious as it was, and when we get to chapter two and even explore uh, the significance that he, he, he planted a garden and he placed 
the, the first human beings in that garden. He gave them a high and holy task of exercising dominion, that is, with, with a view that they would maximize the, pro, the potential for productivity that lay in the earth. So we begin to reach some conclusions as we see that God remedies the formlessness and God remedies the emptiness that we initially encountered in verse two. And it simply begins with this, that God is the sovereign creator of the universe. Some of you grew up hearing that it just kind of all happened to come about. And I think how that, how that robs us of dignity and significance individually. I mean, if, if you and I are, are really nothing more than the sum total of random evolutionary changes, then big deal. Really, I mean, good for you, good for me, glad you're alive, survival of the fittest. But who's to say that before this gathering, you know, this meeting concludes that one of us won't decide that the rest of us should not live. And we shouldn't be too troubled about that after all, right? Because if you're stronger than I, then do I actually deserve to live in this world? And, and if we really are just in this long-standing evolutionary process, should we be that deeply troubled about mass destruction, mass killings? The strong will survive. No, our souls are never content with that, and even that discontentment, if not rage and anger, and we should feel angry when life is wantonly wasted. That's a fingerprint of the creator in you because you know in your soul that life is so much more than the sum total of random evolutionary change over billions of years. You are not here by random chance. Life actually does have great meaning and purpose. It's designed by the creator. It's part of his blessing. There's a second part of that too. God is king. Now that, that's probably harder for us to accept than maybe a creation narrative or theory. Do you know why? Because I want to be king. I mean, I want my computer to work when I turn it on. And it should, right? I want people to do what I think is best. I mean, I want Kristen to rise every morning and say, it is such a privilege and joy to be married to you, oh wise one. <laughs> Whatever your wish is today, I am here to grant that to you. She never says that. <laughs> you know why? Because she's rising with a similar set of desires, hoping I'll bow down to her as queen. It's human nature to want to be in charge, in control, to rule and reign, to exercise sovereignty. We'll get into this more next week. The sad part is God actually created us to be co-regents with him. So even that desire to, to rule and reign and exercise dominion, as distorted and twisted as it, as it sometimes manifests itself, there's an echo of God's good design in us. But sin has so distorted it, corrupted the hard drive, if you will, that, that we maximize it to the exclusion of God and to the harm of people around us. But God created the first people to be kings and queens, but not to be kings or queens over him. 
and not even to occupy space co-equal with him. Co-regency is one thing, but he is still infinitely above us. You can acknowledge that in your head, but the question is, are you actually living today in that reality that God is king? Is he your king? Second big thing. God's creative word produces a universe that is inherently good and divinely blessed. Life really is good. Created a universe out of nothing. Order out of formlessness. Abundance out of emptiness. Productivity out of undeveloped potential. And blessing for people just like us. That's his design. That's his purpose. Now that's really as far as we have time to go this morning. In part because... Um, those of you who've, who've been here long enough know that once a month we, we celebrate the Lord's table. Now here's a transitional thought, and this is not in Genesis 1, I, I'm, but I'm tying something else. I made a big deal a few minutes ago about the fact that only God creates that, that particular Hebrew term. Only God creates in that way. Uh, that not only has implications for creation, but it actually has implications for spiritual salvation. And his creative power extends to the human heart. That's really good news for us on this side of Genesis 3 and the fall where Adam and his wife disobeyed God, ate the forbidden fruit, and, and chaos entered the world. If you look at Psalm 51 for a moment, I want you to notice verse 10. So turn over there with me, please. Um, Psalm 51 is toward the middle of your Bible. It's also an Old Testament book, and if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find Psalm 51 on page 474. Now David wrote this psalm after he was caught in, in some of the worst sin of his life and some of the ugliest sin any of us could commit. He murdered a man in, who was a, a valiant warrior in his army because he had committed adultery with the man's wife, Uriah the Hittite. His wife's name was Bathsheba, and he thought he had gotten away with it for some time, and then the prophet Nathan showed up and told him a story about a, a, wealthy, um, a wealthy man who had a large herd of sheep, and he actually took the one precious lamb from another man and made it his own. And David was outraged, and then David said, you're the man, because David had all that he could desire, and yet he thought that Bathsheba should be his own. Well, he wrote this psalm out of deep conviction of his sin and in the deep hope and even expectation that God would, in fact, forgive him. And so we read in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me and against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's not excusing himself and so he goes on to write a number of things as he confesses the sin and seeks God's forgiveness but then you come to verse 10 and you hear David incorporate this special Word that is only used of God, and he makes a request of God, create in me a clean heart, O God. Does God have that power? Some of you have heart-level issues that you are deeply ashamed of. 
And if it were known in this place what you really are guilty of, you, you would not remain. You would exit one of the doors as fast as you could because you couldn't bear the public humiliation of being known for your sin as you are. But God knows. You, you can hide it from us, but you can't hide it from him. But here's the great hope. Though, though God would be just, going back to those early verses, as God was just to confront and condemn David for his sin. So God would be just to confront and condemn you and me for whatever sins are true of us. He also has the willingness to forgive us for that sins, and he has the power to create a genuinely clean heart. And he doesn't create the heart through, through some process of your obedience and your determination to change and the promises that you might make that you'll never say or do or think those evil things again. No, he has the same creative power to, to create in you a clean heart as he did in Genesis 1 to say, and it is so. And it stands to reason that if you struggle to believe God could create all that is out of nothing in Genesis 1, you might also struggle to believe that he could really create in you a clean heart. But this is the word of God. And there are many people seated here this morning who know exactly what David wrote of, who've experienced the power of God's cleansing and his creating that clean heart. And I'm among them. Doesn't mean that I you know, stopped sinning years ago. I wish I could say that. But I've actually known this creating a clean heart multiple times. And this table with the bread and the cup is a reminder to us of how he does that. He does it ultimately through Jesus. And the bread we're about to share together is a symbol of the broken body of Jesus Christ. It had to be broken so that you and I might be created clean. And the cup is a symbol of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Frequently, I will even say, as you take that cup, look at it. That deep crimson color is a reminder to us of blood. And God wants to remind you of that. And he, he's not trying to remind you so that you'll feel like a dirt bag you know, for the evil that you've done. He wants to move you out of that uncleanness to a place of cleanness. And so the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ are the means whereby he deals with your sin and my sin fully. They, they become the basis for which he would say, I forgive you for your sins as you confess it and acknowledge it to me. And I, I cleanse you by this shed blood of Jesus Christ. So there's every reason to believe when we pray with David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, that he will do it because he's, he's already made provision through Christ. And here are the physical symbols and reminders of that. So the Lord's table is a beautiful reminder of what God has done and continues to do to create clean hearts for sinners like us. I say this pretty much every month. You do not have to be a member of Gospel Hope Church to participate at the Lord's table, but you do, do need to be, uh, to the best of your knowledge, a true child of God. You say, well, how would I know if I'm a true child of God? Well, we, we define that from the Bible, which tells us it, those who are truly uh, the children of God are those who have repented of their sins. That is, you've turned away from as much sin as you are aware of, 
and you've turned to God with as much faith as you have in your heart. It's not perfect repentance or perfect faith that he's after. It's genuine repentance and genuine faith. And if you say, by God's grace, I have done that, and I am doing that, even today, actively turning away from sin and turning to Jesus, then we welcome you. We welcome you to this table. We want you to share.